This is Daring Dialogues, Black Table Talk Edition. I'm your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day and that you are also having a great and wonderful week so far. Tonight is our Black Table Talk Edition where we share Black stories, lift Black voices, and where Black artists matter. Yes, this is our newest offering from our merch store. So if you would like to grab a shirt to support what we do here on the channel, where we share Black stories, lift Black voices, and Black artists matter, you can pick up your shirt at our merch store, and I will leave the link after the show. And this is our logo, which is on the back side of the shirt. So again, if you'd like to, to support what we do here, you can grab a shirt or any shirt on the site. And again, I will leave that link after we're done tonight. So we are back in the book, Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. And we have been talking about America's war, as she calls it, on African-American marriage. We have been learning lots of things. We've been learning about the origins of some things, in, including the pension fund. Uh, we've been learning about uh, the practices that went on during enslavement. Last time we learned about some of the marital practices that were actually European carryovers into American society and how those practices were imposed upon people who, uh, for the benefit of the, in the slave trade, they began to impose these practices after the end, the quote unquote official end of the slave trade. But we know, of course, uh, according to the 13th Amendment, slavery has not been completely abolished in the United States. So that's what we looked at on last time. And we're continuing this conversation um, by talking about what happened after the war. What happened after the Civil War? What happened to those black soldiers and their widows and some of their wives who were seeking a pension? They were seeking some kind of repair for their husbands going to the war. So we're going to continue to talk about that. And um, this is some pretty intense reading tonight. So I do want to put out a trigger warning, content warning uh, for anybody who may be listening in. If you're getting ready to listen, we're going to be talking about um, the Civil War. We're going to be talking about the pension issues. We're going to be talking about... Um, a woman who was actually murdered. We're going to be talking about Mary Turner's lynching. And I do believe that there is a record of her lynching. And then we're going to talk about um, burning and looting black love and what actually happened. And so we're going to try to get through that reading tonight. And I will stop and give some opportunity uh, hopefully for you all who want to make any comments, you can feel free to comment as I'm reading. But we're also going to give about 20 minutes tonight 
for people who might want to comment on the content. Now, if you're commenting on the content, you need to have a camera um, icon available so that I can bring you on. And so I'm talking to the listeners tonight who are on Facebook. If you want to join the conversation, make sure you have that little green camera icon that'll let you know whether or not you can comment. You might need to go ahead and like and follow the page in order for that to be possible. Um, but that is where we're going to start tonight. Here we go. Historian Tiffany Player underscores, by eliminating the burden of proving a service-related injury, the 1890 Act of the Depension, Dependent Pension Act of 1890, this provided new economic protections and articulated long-term obligations to veterans as they advanced in age and their earning capacity was beginning to diminish. Even though the administration and determination of benefits were rife with racial disparities, the 1890 Act was a positive step forward that widened the door for Black and other beneficiaries to pursue their entitlements after the war. Roughly 40,000 Black soldiers died in the Civil War, most of them from infection and disease, leaving a greater number of honorably discharged Black veterans, disabled or not, with the prospect of supporting their families through federal pension funds as of the last decade of the 19th century. For those who had died, surviving widows still had the right to claim their pension benefits. However, if limited regional figures are any indication of what was true nationally, Close to half of the black widows who filed for pension benefits were unsuccessful. Though inclusive of all black and white pension applicants nationally, not solely widows, calculations for the year 1889 disclose a more disturbing disparity. Out of the 6,035 applicants, only 1,217 of them became pensioners, a 20% success rate that paled in comparison to the 67% success rate of white applicants. The sizable number of denials black widows confronted illustrates the place that black marriage occupied in America during and after reconstruction. Legally recognized marriage was a central portal to citizenship rights and responsibilities. Consequently, African-Americans' admission into free society was conditioned on acceptance of an inflexible patriarchal family structure and gender divisions of labor and space. Questions about Black women's marital status also provided state and federal authorities an outlet for disparaging Black widows' reputations at the time, branding them as frauds and liars, meddling in their private lives, and even invalidating their marriage claims altogether just so that they could deny them the pension benefits that were due to them. Even as some Black widows were able to secure pension benefits, allowing them to mourn their deceased loved ones while receiving financial relief from the government, a growing number of Black widows were losing their spouses not to war, but to lynching a crime that brought no financial restitution when it occurred. 
During the last quarter of the 19th century, century, lynching replaced the whip in the wide repertoire of punitive technologies white Americans had designed to desecrate black bodies while enforcing the customs of white supremacist democracy. It is no accident, for example, that the first documented institution inspiring the murder of thousands across southern states was the Southern Democratic Machine itself, which between 1868 and 1871 engineered the disenfranchisement of blacks, not to mention some white Republicans. The most effective tactics in this campaign strategy would be mob lynchings, burnings, and massacres of black citizens. Beyond arenas and times devoted to electoral politics, lynching crept into American quotidian life as a means of controlling post-enslaved black people, trampling on their civil rights, including the right to love, to marry, and transmit humanity to their posterity. Murdered with a black family's history in her womb, Mary Turner's lynching. Between 1877 and 1950, at least, these are the ones that are actually accounted for, at least 4,075 racial terror lynchings were committed against black persons across 12 southern states alone. Not that they only happen in the southern states. A number that reflects only the documented cases of black people illegally killed by a group of at least three persons. We just saw the result of a case, Ahmaud Arbery, where there were three persons who participated in an illegal killing. And while most black victims of lynching were male, the gendered landscape of lynching was not by any means monolithic. By 1922, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had documented 66 black female victims since the year 1889. One of those victims was the pregnant Mary Turner. Her death during the high season of lynching in America illustrates the boundless power that they had to injure and kill black citizens at will. 33-year-old Mary and her husband, Hazel Hayes Turner, were residents of Brooks County, Georgia, living in conditions that mirrored what slave existence had been for their ancestors on Georgia farms 60 years prior. Both of the Turners worked for Claude Hampton Smith. The 25-year-old white farmer regularly purchased cheap and exploitable labor at the local jail by paying the fines for black convicts, also known as convict leasing. Subsequently, the parolee would be forced to work on Smith's farm in order to reimburse him. Like thousands of other white farmers in the South, Smith had become masterful at practically re-enslaving black people through Georgia's peonage system. And like many other Southern states, Georgia openly defied the congressional law prohibiting debt peonage in 1867. So the long history that Georgia has of defying the federal law didn't just start in 2020 or even in 2021. Smith's way of life was a public testimony to this fact. At one point in 1917, Smith had beaten Mary Turner, and when her husband fired back with threats, he was placed on a chain gang only to be released back into Smith's abusive employ at the end of his sentence. Since black people's verbal warnings and threats had no authority to arrest white violence, it is no wonder a plot eventually developed among Smith's neo-enslaved black laborers to kill the white boss before he killed them.
The spring of 1918, this plot was supposedly conceived at Hayes and Mary Turner's home. On May 16th, the day of the ambush, the perpetrators positioned themselves outside the Smith home and fired a shot through the dining room window while Smith and his wife Layla were eating dinner. The bullet struck Smith, killing him instantly. In a panic, his wife immediately fled the home and fell into the hands of the assailants. During a scuffle, she was wounded in the chest by gunshot, but she was not intimately assaulted as widely rumored. His wife survived the attack and identified her assailants as Sidney Johnson and Julius Jones, two black men who indeed worked on her deceased husband's farm. In the days leading up to his death, Smith had actually beaten Johnson mercilessly for attempting to take a one-day sick release from work. And it was later reported that Johnson was the chief conspirator of the plot against Smith. A six-day rampage after this of mob lynchings ensued, and no fewer than 500 blacks fled Georgia's Brooks and Lowndes County. Unfortunately, Hayes Turner was not one of them. His immediate May 18th arrest for purportedly contributing to the murderous plot left him vulnerable to the mob's clutches. While being transported from Brooks County Jail in Quitman, Georgia, to another facility, Turner was lynched and his corpse left hanging at an intersection for two hot spring days. The South had long ago proven that words of defiance uttered by black tongues could be death sentences. Mary only voiced her outrage over her husband's gruesome murder and her intention to bring the 40-plus mass perpetrators to justice should she ever uncover the participants' identities. But it was enough to seal her fate. The following day, the irate mob hunted her down and desecrated her body with cruelty. Mary was hung upside down from a tree limb, feet tied like a hog, doused with oil and gasoline, and set ablaze while still alive enough to feel the knife slicing her womb so that her unborn child, one month shy of birth, would be delivered. When Mary and Hayes' legacy plunged into the dust, a mobster lifted his boot and smashed the infant. This climaxed with a raging crowd riddling her body with hundreds of bullets. All this because a black woman was angry at how her husband had been unjustly murdered. Just days later, one participant reveled in Mary's agony when he told the NAACP Assistant Secretary Walter White at the time, you ought to have heard her howl. With the lynching of the Turners, the South and the governments that empowered it murdered more than just three black family members. It symbolically murdered black love and marriage, depriving the two surviving Turner children of their parental nurturing and refuge. Perhaps they could at least take comfort in discovering that their mother had lost her life in defense of her black love, in defense of her husband, their father, whose innocence of any wrongdoing related to Claude Hampton Smith's death, she steadily upheld until her last breath. Mary Turner's marriage never had a fighting chance to take root in the intimate joys and sorrows of wedded life, to grow old and strong like the trunks, limbs, and leaves that bore the weight of lynched black bodies across the South and the North. And the death of black marriage through such horrendous acts was not a singular event. Other black women in communities subjected to the mayhem of American race riots and massacres would experience the same loss. 
whether wounded or destroyed, black love and marriage would pay a price for the white rage of Americans and its ritualized violence. Such violence at times went far beyond snuffing out individuals and families, ravaging and scattering whole black communities in its thirst to demolish any sign of black life flourishing. The year was 1912, and again, the state was Georgia. Though it could have been Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Carolina, Illinois, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, Pennsylvania, but Georgia again, six years prior. News that several black males had intimately assaulted a young white woman had circulated through town soon after 18-year-old May Crow was found clinging to life in the Oscarville community surrounding woods the evening of September 9, 1912. Ernest Knox, a local motherless, fatherless child who had lived hand-to-mouth for most of his young life in Forsyth County, confessed to the attack under the pressure of a mock lynching. The white man who first questioned the orphan while tying a rope around his neck had intimidated the teenager into confessing exactly what he wanted to hear, that Knox was the perpetrator of the crime. Knox was now most certainly marked for death, but seeing the vengeful horde swelling in numbers outside his window, the sheriff acted quickly to outmaneuver them. Under a Georgia, excuse me, under a judge's order, he moved Knox from his Gainesville jail to Atlanta's Fulton County Jail to evade the mob's death grip. Knox's inquisitor had rushed him to the Gainesville jail just over the Chattahoochee River in the neighboring Hall County to escape the mob that was ready to lynch the prisoner, adolescent though he was, if he had been taken to Cumming Jail. With Knox now out of the mob's reach, the entire town of Cumming, the seat of the county, and neighboring Forsyth citizens were whipped into fury. Forsyth and other neighboring Georgia counties had been soaked with black blood of the slaughter for decades, and just four days prior to May Crow's attack, another white woman, Ellen Grice, was reportedly awakened by the presence of a Negro man in her bed. The insinuation was that she had been intimately assaulted. Forsyth Sheriff William Reed and his deputy Mitchell Gay Lummis immediately arrested five suspects with no evidence to justify their detention. Another black man, a well-respected preacher's son and part-time preacher himself, was whipped nearly to death by a mob of 300 for comments he made about the unnecessary trouble that had befallen the suspects on account of a, quote, sorry white woman. Rescued by officers of the, of the law before he could be lynched, he too had been taken into custody. The mob was enraged that his prey had been ushered to secure locations for their safety until trial. Now, the 2,000-strong vigilante group would not be deprived this time around. Taking advantage of rumors tying one of Knox's acquaintances, Robert Edwards, to the crime involving May Crow, the vigilantes quickly seized the opportunity. On September 10th, the day after Crow's attack, Edwards became the first lynch victim related to her case. A month later, a shoddy trial found Ernest Knox and another teenager, Oscar Daniel, guilty of assault. And an audience of about 5,000 assembled to view their execution by hanging October 25, 1912. Swift justice by any measure of the word. Killing Knox and Daniel wasn't enough, though, 
for the white mob of Cooming. Mobsters actually wanted to rid Forsyth County of all black presence. Now, if you remember, Oprah Winfrey actually um, did a show on this particular county because they have had this long history of black mob violence. And I believe currently their sheriff is a black man, which is really interesting. Back to this detailed story here. Just days after the Crow incident, white men began to gather during the evening, systematically threatening black communities with terroristic violence if they did not pack up and leave the county. The purge only intensified when white residents feared black retaliation. The same night of Robert Edwards' killing and display on a telephone pole near Cooming, Georgia courthouse, a mysterious fire broke out, consuming the storehouse of a local white man named Willie Boyce. The white citizens of Cooming took the fire as a sign of black retribution for Edwards' lynching. They had long feared that Cooming's black citizens would someday retaliate for the centuries of mistreatment of enslaved and post-enslaved black communities and saw the fire as a signal that it was time to escalate their terror campaign and demands for a black exodus. To be sure, black citizens knew they were serious. Their terrorism went beyond stoning black residences and firing warning shots at front doors. They also burned black churches and properties. With neither homes nor black institutions to return to, Forsyth's black refugees would have to find new places to settle and start over. Let me put a caveat here. As a black person in America, most people feel like refugees because regardless of where you go in this country, you might have to settle and start over somewhere else. So I don't think there's ever been a time in our history in this country where black people have actually just felt, ooh, I can relax here. I'm comfortable here. Nothing could possibly happen to me here. So this idea and this notion of being from this country, being from the descendants of the enslaved, and yet still feeling like a refugee, like you never have belonged, is not new. Driving the pandemonium even further was the fact that despite her doctor's prediction that she would recover from her injuries, the white woman, May Crow, had contracted pneumonia while in a coma, and she died a few weeks after this attack. One Atlanta headline read, enraged white people are driving blacks from the county. Another one announced, Negroes flee from Forsyth. An involuntary exodus of 1,100 people cleansed the county of black presence within the space of two months, spelling incalculable losses of property, spouses, and other life investments. So when someone tells me, what about black on black crime? I'm always going to ask, what about white terrorism? Are we not ever going to talk about that? Garrett and Josie Cook, for example, were not spared even a day to figure out where to run to or how to part with their immovable wealth. They own 27 acres of land. 
The morning after Maycrow's funeral, George Jordan, a sympathetic white farmer, had gone to check on the cooks only to find sheer mayhem. The cook home had been shot so full of holes that all the legs on the tables, chairs, and the bed had been shot off. So who's really doing the drive-by shootings in communities of color where gentrification just crops up? So coincidentally, I'll just let you think about that for a moment. Fortunately, Josie and Garrett took cover in the woods, but after the attack on their home, they immediately fled Forsyth County, never to return. So did every other black person in the area. According to Georgia's daughter, Ruth Jordan, night riders paraded in the streets every night until no colored person was left. Another local white resident, Joel Witt, recalled that over time, quote, certain men would go to a black person's home with sticks tied up in a little bundle and leave them at the door. When such lynching props were placed outside the cabin of some, Last proud black farmer, by sun up, he and his whole family would be gone because it was stay and be lynched or leave and rebuild your life. Those were the two choices. The exodus severed families as well. Bird Oliver literally lost his wife and three of his seven children while fleeing Forsyth County with about 75 other black residents. They would walk so far and then count everyone in the group. Just before they got to the river, three of his relatives were missing, but you could not turn back and look for them. Bird's daughter, Dorothy, explained. She knew from memory the story of how her father's first wife, Delia, and their three eldest daughters were nowhere to be found among Forsyth County's group of black exiles who made their way along an 11-mile route to Gainesville, Georgia. So to be clear... We didn't just have the Cherokee Trail of Tears. I know that's the one that we know about historically, but let's talk about all of these other black trails of tears of black people having to flee their communities, having to flee their homes, having to flee their land and the property that they own because of white terrorism in this country. Bird resettled there with his four boys and remarried Beulah Rucker, the woman who would give birth to Dorothy. However, not knowing the fate of his first wife and three daughters was a wound that never healed. We can only speculate about the spontaneous decisions Bird and Delia were forced to make about their family's unknown future, struggling to exit Forsyth County without stumbling into the hands of the Knight Riders. What we know for certain, though, is that local white terrorism drove them out, severed their union, and destroyed the wealth and assets of their love. So again, when people ask the question, why aren't black people in this country further along? I want you to respond. Why did white terrorism drive black families out of their homes and out of their land, destroying their wealth and destroying their assets? Over and over and over again. And now we have a 228 year wealth gap. What does that mean? That means it will take 228 years for black wealth to catch up with white wealth in this country where it is right now. 
Everything has a foundation. This severing of black families and the destruction of their property and investments through racially motivated massacres intensified across the nation as black people gained independence. They launched enterprises that began to compete with local white businesses and they acquired coveted jobs. On February 22nd, 1898, Lavinia and Fraser Baker's home burned for this reason alone. The perpetrators destroyed not just property and persons, they deprived survivors of black love, the comforts and security that the marriage provides children and a wider kin group. An unwelcomed outsider in a predominantly white settlement, Fraser Baker, the upwardly mobile Lake City, South Carolina postmaster, had been targeted before. He was wounded by gunshot shortly after accepting his new appointment and relocating to his assigned office in Lake City. The first attack was definitely more than a warning. The outcome of the second, however, was devastating because after the Baker and their children's unsuccessful attempts to smother the fire, they fled their residence for the shelter of the streets, only to have a mob of white men open fire on them. But the shots were lethal even before they could unlatch the front door. The youngest family member, baby Julia, was the first to fall. Lavinia had sought to shield the 23-month-old under her arm in hope of dashing to safety in the woods, but then a bullet entered her hand and ripped through Julia, killing the infant instantly. Well, so much for all of that pro-life talk. With a blazing fire consuming his home and no place left to hide from the random shots, Fraser quickly opened the door and withstood several bullets before collapsing in a heap. Even in death, Fraser extended protection to his baby, for Julia's body had been sheltered from additional gunfire under the cover of her father's corpse. The three eldest Baker children were wounded by continuing gunfire as they made their escape. Left to her own resources, Lavinia scrambled to the woods to collect and comfort the three who had been wounded, along with the two who had fled unharmed from the atrocity. In the aftermath, benevolent white community members offered support to the Baker survivors, but it was the black community that most immediately wrapped its arms around what was left of the severed and severely wounded Baker family, providing sanctuary to Lavinia and her remaining five children. By the first decade of the 20th century, new waves of terrorist mobs had joined lynch mobs to become the chief conspirators in white America's assaults on its black citizens. Massacres and pogroms in Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898, Atlanta, 1906, Springfield, Illinois, 1908, East St. Louis, Illinois, 1917, seemed harbingers of the fateful red summer of 1919 when 26 race riots erupted in different American cities throughout both the North and the South. So, America's violence against black citizens is as American as apple pie. And I think we need to continue to have this conversation and talk about the real history of America because for some reason 
Certain people who arrive to this country seem to think that they share the same exact history as black Americans do. And the reality is you haven't heard half of what has happened to black American citizens and the white terrorism against specifically the descendants of the formerly enslaved. I encourage you to get this book, Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African American Marriages. Not America's War on Interracial Marriages, America's War on African American Marriages. Get the book. There is a difference. There is a long history of the difference. And I appreciate Diane M. Stewart for um, writing this book, for talking about our specific um, justice claims, our specific injustices that have happened to us as a people. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, Black Table Talk Edition. I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have a great and wonderful evening. Hopefully on this Teachable Tuesday, I have shared something with you that will make you go and dig. Check out the video. I will try to post it down here in the comment section where Oprah actually visits Forsyth County and finds out not a whole lot has changed. All right. So again, thank you all for your time and attention tonight. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Be light in your community, be light in your neighborhood, and most importantly, be light with your family. Take care and God bless.